Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. But joining us today for this special, our first ever three-person episode uh, focused on the retirement of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy is Northern Kentucky University law professor Ken Kathkin. Hey, guys. Good morning. So I thought we could start by talking a little bit about who Anthony Kennedy was you know, as a judge, because obviously he mainly sided with the court's conservatives. In fact, in every major 5-4 decision this term, I believe he did. But he would sometimes provide a, a pretty important swing vote for the court's liberals, at least in the past. So uh, what do you think differentiated him from uh, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and, and Roberts? Let, and, and why don't we uh, start with, uh, with you, Ken? What do you think? Well, he... Um I, it, 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 you can answer that question from a lot of perspectives, but I think from a um, from from a perspective of his uh, approach to being a judge, uh, I, I think he he really liked being the swing judge. He really liked being the center of power on the court. He really liked it that all the arguments were um, directed to get his vote, and uh, I think that was a big motivating factor for him. And so that actually required him to vote uh, sometimes with with the liberals. Um, right, because the whole the whole thing of being the, the swing judge and the one who gets to decide all the cases um, is that is that your vote can't be uh, reliably counted on um, by by the, the faction that you're in, and in his case, the conservative faction. Um, and I think he he did fancy himself a libertarian. His libertarianism um, uh, influenced his 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 judicial philosophy. Uh, he was. Um, Sympathetic to some uh, some kinds of individual rights claims, uh, whether it was in uh, gay rights cases or, or death penalty cases, um, or the cases with the Guantanamo detainees um, that um, the other conservatives were not sympathetic to. Um, so I'd say that's the main thread. But he did share some of the um, uh, um, agenda and obsessions, I would say, of of the other conservative justices, uh, particularly in areas like states' rights, which which he would call uh, federalism. It was a very reliable vote in, in those kind of cases. Um, so I'd say those, those, that, that's what I would say would be the broad strokes of his approach to his role on the Supreme Court. Yeah. And Jay, now coming at it from the from the right, I know a lot of folks on the right were sometimes driven crazy by Justice Kennedy at times. And I, I bet a few times you were one of those people. So uh, what what is it about Kennedy that maybe made people on the right kind of very conflicted uh, about him? Well, I, you know, I, I think first, I, I just this is just a funny historical note that that people maybe forget. Um, but Justice Kennedy was uh, appointed. He was he was really sort of the second choice. Uh, the first choice being Robert Bork, um, who uh, <laughs> invented the the verb, you know, Bork uh, for for what happened to him. Um, uh, and you know, Kennedy was was then appointed later uh, as someone who was was seen rightfully so as as more moderate. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Ken's right as far as as describing where where Kennedy comes from. He was a lot. Uh, he was pretty doctrinaire on on your typical statutory interpretation. Uh, uh, you know, conservative view of of, of uh, economic rights, um, where he differed was on this this expansion of, um, uh, for lack of a better word, called substantive due process in in sort of the social sphere. Um, 
And that that has always troubled conservatives uh, for a number of reasons. One, it, it, it's difficult to find, at least for me to find, in a lot of Kennedy's uh, opinions, um, uh, particularly uh, the uh, same-sex marriage uh, case uh, last year. You know, what's what's the articulable articulable principle? Um, that he's talking about it. And it, it, it does, I mean, it, it's troubling and Ken said, look, he'd like to be the swing vote. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, like, uh, Mel Brooks said, it's, it's good to be the King. Um, I think that's a little troubling that, that, you know, if he, he would do that without, without a guiding principle, I, I, I would prefer justices who you can say, look, this is pretty consistently. We think we're, where they're, they're going to go because there's, there's a, a big value and predictability, uh, of the law. So, um, yeah, I think that's what what troubled me most about Kennedy was was oftentimes uh, his decisions on these substantive due process issues didn't seem to be anchored uh, to anything uh, either in, in precedent or or in in natural law or something that you can you can really grab a hold of and say this is the Kennedy jurisprudence. It just seemed much more this is this is something I like. This is something I don't like. See, my sense of it was always that he was more guided by kind of a, a libertarian ideology. And a lot of those, a lot of those decisions, especially the, the LGBTQ rights ones are the ones I think about the most, uh, that kind of desire to uh, uphold the dignity of the individual and that sort of thing. And I felt like that was a thread that kind of ran through a lot of his, his jurisprudence. Is that, I mean, am I right there? Do you, do you think Ken? Yeah. I mean, that's the word I had used before. I, I do think he, um, was a libertarian, but I think I think you know there were limits to how much he would uh, infuse his judicial opinions with his own libertarianism because he he wanted to stay the swing vote even after he decided some of the landmark cases that we talked about. So you know after he uh, became probably the leading voice on the court for for gay rights in a series of cases that started in the mid '90s and that ended in the same sex marriage case. Nonetheless, he wanted his vote to still be available in cases like the recent uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case where people want to discriminate against gays. And so, so you know, after being the, the, the justice who gave us same-sex marriage, um, he's also the justice who gave us the right of uh, business corporations to discriminate against gays. After he was the justice who, who saved uh, Roe versus Wade um, in some important cases in the 90s, um, uh, in the last 20 years, he's very rarely seen a restriction on abortion that he wasn't willing to approve and sustain. Um, so he, so he'll make libertarian pronouncements, but I think, you know, I really do think his highest priority was to be the, the king, the swing vote, the center of the court, and that that transcended his libertarianism and that that made him uh, very much willing to um, weaken the kind of uh, libertarian protections that he would announce in the major cases. Uh, well, that, that's really interesting that you guys, I mean, for all your political uh, differences, uh, seem, to, seem to agree that uh, it wasn't, I mean, to a certain extent, while uh, political philosophy and judicial uh, philosophy may have guided Kennedy, this sort of, I guess you could call it, for lack of a better word, ego maybe made him a little less uh, uh, consistent to his political or judicial philosophy just to, to, to be the king there, which yeah. I think yeah. we can agree is not necessarily a great quality uh, in, a, in, a, in any judge, but especially in a, a justice on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, one thing I'm sure you guys have, no, guys have noticed this, too, is that in all the coverage of this, and of course there's been a ton, I've gotten a sense that the court oftentimes seems to be portrayed as, you know, just another political branch. The justices just 
kind of being politicians in robes, you know, always looking basically for any sort of uh, a feasible rationale to advance whatever their ideological agenda happens to be, you know, and so we we have a lot, we get a lot about political ideology of the justices, but I feel like we don't hear much at all, at least in the, the mainstream media, about judicial philosophy. And I'm wondering if you agree with me on this, and and if you do, if you think that's a that that's problematic, or it's maybe giving people a, a, a false or skewed impression of uh, of the court. Uh, Jay, what do you think? Well, from my perspective, and and again, this is taking you know uh, I'm looking at this from an originalist textualist kind of perspective. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the case. Uh, and, and I think that the media is is at fault for sort of one simplifying this um, as to, oh, it's a Republican versus Democrat. Uh, the other piece, and, and I think Ken will disagree with me on this, is that I, I think uh, if the media were to try to accurately portray judicial philosophy, I think it would uh, it would not necessarily go well with the, the members of the court who are more to the left. Uh, simply because, uh, you know, there's the, the idea of, of a conservative um, judicial approach uh, is we're going to treat words, uh, it, it says what it means, every word has has some sort of meaning. Uh, we're going to look at what was the intent uh, to the extent that is necessary to look at the intent of, of when this this uh, clause was uh, placed in the Constitution or the statutory uh, provision. And we're going to look at, at history and precedent and, and give those uh, really some pretty heavy weight. Um, whereas, I, and, and Ken can speak to this better than I can, but the other philosophy is though it's this is a living breathing constitution uh i guess i guess it could be you know down to you know scalia who said the constitution is dead 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 um uh and and you know what what you have is what you get uh, what you, and and you you know can extrapolate uh those uh, basic principles to new situations that come up but it's not an evolving document with with new rights that are are, are created uh through the judiciary or or uh, as, as they would put it, found, uh, you know, emanating in penumbras and, and so forth. I think that's the that's the big difference. And and to me, I, th- I think, you know, one is one is intellectually and, and you know, superior to the other. But I, I expect Ken will disagree. So, Ken? Yeah, I mean, actually, actually, I think I'll disagree with all parts of what Jay said, although he expected me only to disagree with half of it, I think. So, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I would look at the, the courts probably the same as the other branches of government where Let's take something like the Justice Department, right? If you if you look at what your typical um, assistant U.S. attorney is doing in a typical case, I'd say that's fairly non-ideological, non-political work. If you have an ordinary criminal case, it's not going to matter that much whether um, the, the 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 prosecutor who's assigned to that case is a, is a Democrat or a Republican. There's not going to be uh, opportunities for that to come out. But but as you move up to the heads of departments, as you move up to the say the the level of the Attorney General. Um, it matters tremendously, right? It, it, we're seeing huge policy shifts because Jeff Sessions is attorney general. He's doing a lot of things differently than how uh, Eric Holder or Loretta Lynch did them. And you would expect that because that's a political appointment. That's part of the president's cabinet. Um, now, I would say it's identical in the courts. Um, I think the the lower courts, um, the, the federal district courts, to some extent, the federal circuit courts, um, a, a large part of the work that they do it would not matter that much whether the judge in a particular case is a Democrat or Republican. Uh, in fact, the, um, the the circuit courts, the U.S. courts of appeals, sit in three-judge panels, and and very frequently 
a three-judge panel is going to include both Democratic and Republican appointed uh, uh, judges. And almost all of these panel decisions are unanimous. You rarely see uh, dissents, um, uh, except in the most hot-button cases. Um, but when you get up to the level of the Supreme Court, I, I think the public is basically right to look at it as being politicians in robes. I, I think it's uh, absurd um, to, to talk about the kind of originalism and textualism that, um, uh, that, 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 uh, that Jay was just talking about as anything other than um, uh, the Republican Party platform. You know, when you hear the word originalism, you're talking about a justice who's saying, I am going to implement the Republican Party platform always. Um, and, uh, and, and, and when they talk about the, the, the original, you know, the history, the precedents, things like that, they're always uh, imagining uh, kind of the leave it to beaver time of the 1950s. It's got never anything to do with the, the, the 1780s or, or the 1860s. And so, so I, I think that that, um, you know, is, is when people use those words, those are code words for saying I'm, I'm, I'm all about the Republican Party platform. Well, what about this idea? I, I would say oh, John, John Roberts would, uh, I mean, if you take a look at the Roberts vote on uh, Obamacare, though, that certainly, uh, he took a, uh, what, what I think would be described as a judicially conservative uh, position in that we're deferring to the legislature. Uh, he uh, didn't. That's just wrong. Um, the Obamacare decision was an incredibly conservative judicial activist uh, decision that um, struck down everything that was important in the Affordable Care Act and 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 tried to position itself as this is the Roberts opinion I'm talking about that uh, tried to position itself the the way that that you described it. But the the Medicaid expansion was substantially more important than the individual mandate. Um, and he did strike it down. And there was no basis in in text or history. Um, or precedents for for striking down any part of that law. Well, uh, you know, I think almost everyone would agree that the person that Donald Trump is going to nominate uh, to replace Anthony Kennedy is is going to be to the right of of, of Anthony Kennedy, and that it's likely this is going to happen almost certainly before the court's next term starts in October. And you know, there are some people who say that, well, you know, Mitch McConnell. Uh, use this pretext to not hold hearings on Merrick Garland, who, of course, was President Obama's nominee to replace uh, Scalia, and that therefore, by the same token, we should allow the democratic process to work its way through and wait until after the elections to basically allow the public to have its say as to what sort of a, what sort of a Senate they want to. Uh, advise and consent on this on this nomination. I was wondering what 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 you thought about that, Ken. You know, I I think um, it's it's I think the Democrats um, should oppose the nominee. I don't know that they're going to succeed in stopping anybody. Um, it, it, the reasons for opposing it seem to me to have to do more with um, you know if they're going to run an election on the idea that they're going to provide a check against Trump. They need to work on actually providing a check against Trump. They, they can't just say, you know, our whole thing is that we're going to provide a check against Trump. And then when something big comes along, say, well, we're, we're not going to do anything. Um, so I think they have to position themselves against it. I don't I don't really see a, a good way to stop it unless um, unless Trump does something, which I don't think he will do. If he appoints the kind of really low caliber people that he has appointed to his cabinet, um, there may be an opportunity to to to. To, to swing a few Republican senatorial votes based on the, the sort of credentials of the nominee. But but I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's going to stick with that um, the Federal Society list that he that he uh, chose Gorsuch from. And some are saying that he's even made a tacit deal with Kennedy that he will nominate a, uh, 
a former Kennedy clerk, which actually Gorsuch also was. Um, and if he does that, I, I, I don't see any Republicans voting against this nomination. Yeah. Jay? Um, yeah, at first I, I'd say, um, you know, I think that the differential, and, and again, I expect uh, argument on this point, but uh, one is there was a vacancy that occurred in the midst of a presidential election. Um, and this is this is occurring in the, uh, uh, you know, mid midterms uh, uh, before a um I mean, there's there's always an election at some point. So, um, you know, you can disagree with what McConnell did um, if you want to say it's it's somehow a dirty pool uh, not to have held hearings. And if you remember, I was on record saying he should have held hearings. Yep. Uh, But uh, uh, he was certainly within his constitutional rights uh, and and rights under the Senate rules not to. Uh, And I think the argument that, look, we're in the midst of a presidential election. Uh, and the president ought to get a nominee um, uh, who, who he or she wants, uh, and I think that's I think that's a, a um, let's put it this way that's that's a not that's not a frivolous argument. Uh, and there was also a, really a a pretty big element of risk for for McConnell in in doing that uh, in the idea that uh, look Merrick Garland uh, was seen as sort of a a, a centrist. Um, and uh, the idea of if Hillary Clinton had been elected, uh, she could have appointed someone uh, much, much farther to the left. So, um, I, you know, look, it's it's uh, I think it, someone has said all all procedural um, arguments are, are hypocritical. And and to some extent, this this falls in there. But I, I would agree with Ken that I think there's going to be the Republican votes to do this. Uh, I have to think. For all for all of Trump's sort of fly by night operations and announcing policies and just jumping into stuff, um, I have to think this is a situation that that was foreseen for some years, right? This so you've had some some very smart people uh, thinking about this, you know, before Trump even announced that that he would be running. So uh, I my ex- expectation again with the the input from the uh, Heritage Foundation Federal Society, uh, this is going to be a pretty strong list of folks, and it sounds as if they are uh, reaching out to the uh, 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 senators who need to be reached out to uh, to sort of sort of smooth this this process. So yeah, well, I will say before we move on on the uh, on the McConnell thing of of course what he did with. With Garland was 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 ridiculous was a ridiculous uh, pretext and and unconscionable and I find him just sort of a reprehensible person for saying that he you know is all for these norms of the Senate and all that but Mitch McConnell's interested in power and that's really it and so in some ways I find him worse than than your uh, than your uh, you know Ted Cruz's and so forth who at least are who they are but that's that's another matter I have my issues with Mitch McConnell but but oh, actually Michael can I add one more thing before yeah, yeah, we move on do. yeah so 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 first of all. Um, you know, I know Jay, Jay had mentioned Judge Bork earlier. Nothing unfair happened to Judge Bork. He was given a hearing and he was given an up or down vote. He wasn't filibustered. Uh, he wasn't denied a hearing. Um, uh, and in fact, um, there were enough Republicans on the court uh, that if they would have voted for him, they could have confirmed him without any Democratic votes. But um, what happened was that after he had a fair hearing and, uh, to, and, and the Republicans were in the majority, and they took an up or down vote. He he only got forty eight votes because some of the Republicans defected. So I, I can't see that that's the, you know at all comparable to anything that happened to Merrick Garland well, being it, denied denied a hearing. 
Well, again, I, I would say that I, I'm not saying anything unfair happened to, to Bork, uh, but that was really um, probably the first time in our history where uh, objections were lodged on an ideological basis. Uh, the, the history before had largely been that a president got his nominee. Uh, there were there were you know pushbacks here and there, uh, and it was as long as the nominee was uh, uh, someone who had the the credentials, which which I think Bork did. Uh, decisions weren't based on uh, ideology, and that was yeah, that was really the first time that happened. Oh, that's completely wrong again, and that really proves my earlier point about Republicans talking about originalism and looking only back to the 1950s, uh, because it's true that in the 20th century, there were 13 times that Republican presidents were able to get um, their, their, their nominees uh, confirmed by Democratic Senates without regard to ideology. That never happened even once in the other direction. There's no 20th century examples um, of, of, a, of a Democratic president uh, getting their nominees uh, um, confirmed by a Republican Senate. Literally never happened. So that's a one-way uh, 20th century norm. And if you go back to the 19th no, can, century... Can, what, about, what about the Clinton years? What about the Clinton years? They had a Democratic Senate. So, so Ken, what you're saying is that in, in instances, let me just be clear, yeah, in instances yeah. where there was a Democratic president and a yeah. Republican majority in the Senate, we can't yeah. find any instance in the 20th not, century. Not once in the 20th century. Oh, not we could once. find it the other way. Gotcha. gotcha. Thirteen times the other way. And, and also um, this idea about ideology not coming into play. If you go back to the John Tyler administration in the 19th century, uh, they, they, the Senate blocked uh, five uh, John Tyler nominees uh, because they didn't like uh, John Tyler. Um, so so there, there are precedents for that that, that, that go um, to presidential politics. But, uh, but the originalism for Republicans always stops at the 1950s. Well, uh, let, let's move on to a few issues, because obviously people are talking about a lot of things that might be very different on a court, assuming, and I think it's a fair assumption, that uh, President Trump's nominee is going to be kind of along the lines of a, of a Gorsuch type person, and that person is going to be confirmed and be sitting for the, you know, the term that starts in October. So let, let's start with partisan gerrymandering, which, you know, recently came before the court. And, you know, it seemed to me that even though Kennedy sided with conservatives this time, in the past, he's clearly expressed the belief that he'd at least be willing to consider a reasonable standard. So I'm wondering, do you think we can just basically forget about this now and that we're not going to see the court rule in, you know, on this, at least in the way that I think, I think they should, that partisan gerrymandering is not constitutionally okay? Um, Ken? Yeah, I mean, this is one of these Justice Kennedy things. Justice Kennedy, because he liked, as we've talked about, to be such the kingmaker, he always held out the idea that he thought um, partisan gerrymandering could be unconstitutional. And if someone would just present him the right argument, he would he would rule against it. Um, but, you know, he never did. Right. So there never was a case where he ruled against partisan gerrymandering. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the given the likelihood that um, his successor will be to the right of him uh, on that issue. Um, you know, I don't see the court striking down partisan gerrymanders uh, anytime soon, but I will make this prediction. If they ever do it, it's going to be in the case where it's a state where the Democrats did a partisan gerrymander. <laughs> Jay, what do you think? Uh, I, again, I would say uh, uh, the, the originalist 1950s uh, approach, as, as uh, Ken likes to put it, uh, would be that uh, no one has ever found a right 
to to have a uh, district configured uh, specifically based on on, on political preference. Uh, it's been a political question since the founding, and I think uh, most uh, most uh, well, I, I would expect the Trump nominee would would view it that way that this is a political question. Um, and and you, there's no particular right to have your your state uh, uh, configured in a way that that uh, suits someone in a, in a particular district. And just to be clear for listeners who aren't aware of that that idea of political question, people might hear that and say, "Well, aren't all these questions political questions?" And so, where you could. It maybe explain just a little bit about what you mean by that, because of course the court will sometimes say that it won't uh, it won't uh, rule on what are what they call political questions. So, wh- what does that what does that term mean more kind of specifically in the context uh, of the court? In in the context of the court, it means that this is a decision that is is to be left up to another branch. Um, uh, that this is a uh, for example the the. One big case that that's typically cited for political questions had to do with uh, a seating of a, uh, 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 a House member. Um, I believe a House member, or was he a Senate member? Can you may? Well, Adam Clayton, if you're talking about Adam, yeah, Clayton Adam Powell, Clayton Powell, the, the, yeah, the, the, he was a House member, but the court actually uh, rejected the argument that that was a political question and ordered that he be seated. Right, but I'm saying that's that's the typical type of of political question issue that you come up with where uh, you've got uh, a, a situation where um, a, a power is assigned to a political branch of government and uh, the uh, court says, we're not going to wade into this. This is up to someone else. Yeah. I mean, the, the usually um, in, the, in, the, in the way the court has articulated the political question doctrine, it has to be that, the, that you have a trial-like procedure that's um, uh, the Constitution uh, delegates to one of the other branches of the United States government, so that could have nothing to do with redistricting or gerrymandering because the the other branches of the United States government don't play a role in in districting. But but you do see it in cases like um, the the most famous modern cases about this, where the court finds that a case can't be decided by courts because it because of the political question doctrine would be things like whether there can be an appeal from an impeachment. Right. So so there have been some federal judges who've been impeached and removed and they tried to take appeals into the courts. And the court Supreme Court says, um, well, because the impe- the trial of impeachments um, is delegated by the Constitution to the Senate and takes place in the Senate, which is one of the other branches of the United States government. Um, it's not uh, appealable into the, into the courts. So there's really no I don't think there's any serious application of that doctrine to gerrymandering or redistricting, but it's a doctrine about allocation of power within the United States government between the three branches of the United States government. You know, I'd also like to talk about uh, LGBTQ rights. Uh, now, this is a big area where Justice Kennedy uh, often sided with the court's liberals. And of course, he wrote the majority opinion in a number of very important cases uh, involving these rights. And so I'm wondering how you think his legacy is going to stand up here, particularly, you know, there are people wondering, well, will will a new court potentially overrule its uh, fairly recent decision on, on same-sex marriage? Uh, uh, what do you think, Ken? That's a tough one. Uh, I, I think... Um Here's what I think about that, which makes it hard to predict. I think that um, Chief Justice Roberts, from an institutional standpoint, 
would not like for the court to be seen as being so nakedly political as that. He usually tries to, um, from an institutional standpoint, have the, the changes in direction be more incremental and, and modest. And that would be very sudden and very, um, you know, would be perceived by most most people, I think, as, as sort of purely based on the change in personnel on the court. The problem is um, Roberts may not be able to stop a case like that from coming up because it, it takes only uh, four votes, not five, um, to, to grant certiorari and, and put a case in, in front of the court. And I, I think he may be the only one um, of, of, of what will be the new conservative bloc with, with that kind of um, uh, uh, concern for institutional norms and for the perception of the institution. And, and I do think if they, put it, if they bring the case up and they put it um, in front of, of him, and he actually has to cast a vote. I think he would repeat his vote, um, you know, Bergefell uh, against uh, same-sex marriage, and so that would be a, a fifth vote against it. Jay, it's, I think that's what makes it hard oh. to predict. I think yeah. the chief chief would like to avoid that case, but it but it but might have to vote uh, that way if it came up. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to uh, uh, to happen. Um, I I think Roberts would prevail uh, on the other justices, and I, I think there is an interest in seeing. Stability uh, in, in the court and and the the idea of sort of the a whipsaw effect of okay we're ruling this uh, this year and overruling it two years later, uh, I I think that would be a a a big problem. Um, so no, I I don't. Uh, I mean I, I agree with Ken. Look, there's something could could happen, but the other the other thing to to remember is you'd have to have some sort of statute uh, to come up there. Um, uh, I, I think we're at a point in this country where uh, I think that would be be uh, a tough sell. I, I just I don't I don't see it happening um, from a, a, a political standpoint that that some state says, OK, we're going to to uh, ban gay marriages. Um, and, uh, you know, that that case goes up. Hmm. OK, well, they might not they might not need a new statute. They, a lot of them have statutes like that on the books and all they would need to do is just uh, refuse to give uh, gay people the marriage licenses under under the statutes that are already on the books in the states. Yeah, but outside of a Roy Moore uh, type type situation, I I just don't see that happening. Okay. Well, what yeah, about yep. well, what about this? I mean, something that's not quite as uh, uh, dramatic. I don't know, but denial of services to same-sex weddings. I mean, we, we saw the you know in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, for instance, and I believe uh, the, the court ordered a case involving a florist who denied service to a same-sex uh, wedding back down to, to be to be tried. So uh, how do you see this one shaking up? Because my take on the Masterpiece Cake Shop, at least, was it seemed like Kennedy said, well, you know, if there hadn't been these comments by this regulatory or this, this you know, this judicial type board, essentially, that uh, uh, that, that really kind of was his big problem with it. And so th- do you see the new conservative majority basically saying that, uh, hey, if you are an artist in service of a same-sex wedding, which I guess would cover not just cake makers, but florists and probably photographers, videographers, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that this is going to be more of a thing now? I'm sorry. Um, I'll, Jim, yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll start. Um, in terms of the uh, things like where there is some some sort of artistic presentation that that goes into it that can be construed as as speech uh, endorsing um, uh, a same sex union, yes, I, I think so, and and I think the court will at some point draw a line, much like what the um, uh, concurrence uh, did in uh, uh, masterpiece, uh, is sort of sort of drawing a line between. 
refusal of service based on your your uh, sexual identity versus uh, uh, requiring speech in support of, of that. So, you know, I think you're going to have the the situations where you know, as in masterpiece uh, masterpiece uh, cake. Um, you know, the record showed that and the, the owner had said, look, if you want to buy cupcakes, if someone wants to buy a cake off the shelf, um, you know, I'm, he's not going to discriminate uh, based on, on sexual orientation, uh, but is not going to participate in a, a ceremony um, uh, that, that uh, he felt feels uh, violates his religious beliefs. Well, and I wonder how far you could take that, though, because like I said, I could see that argument applying to, say, uh, florists and photographers. But, you know, I mean, caterers, they uh, make food and do uh, you could argue that, you know, cooking is an artistic thing. I mean, I could see this potentially being stretched to uh, to 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 a degree where I would certainly be uncomfortable with. Uh, Ken, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's where they're headed for sure. I mean, even in the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case, you know, you, you, you noted um, the Justice Kennedy's opinion for the court uh, focused a lot on sort of certain supposed comments by members of a state commission in Colorado and, and didn't focus on the kind of uh, First Amendment free speech type argument that you're talking about now. And of course, the reason for that is that the, um, the facts of that case were that this gay couple just simply wanted to buy a cake off the shelf. They, they did not at all try to have the uh, cake maker um, make any uh, particular customized cake that reflected the same-sex marriage. But, um, but because you have some ideological conservatives who are on the court who are just hell-bent to vote um, in favor of the baker and against the gay couple, some of them were just overlook, willing to overlook the actual facts or rewrite the actual facts. And, you know, Kennedy didn't go quite that far, so he, he um, rested on some, some thinner legal justifications. But I think that's going to be the, the ideological bent of the court if they can't overrule the same-sex marriage case, they're going to do everything they can to, um, uh, to to create open season for anti-gay discrimination in the country. Yeah, and that, that was sort of my... What that, I that's was, on the agenda, Ken. Uh, open season for gay discrimination. That is... Well, pop- yes. I, I'm sorry, well, i got to well, push well, back that, a little yeah. bit. Well, let me that's say this. Cake shop well, my sense of things, and we're going to get to this in just a minute, but before we do get to, to Roe v. Wade, my sense of things is in the wake of Roe v. Wade, when we had a more started to have a more conservative court, while they didn't overrule it, certainly it was, I think it's undeniable that it was basically been chipped away at. And, and my, my thinking is that with a more conservative court, we're likely to see this same sort of thing when it comes to LGBTQ rights. So, you know, maybe gay marriage itself won't be overruled, but there'll be various other types of things that the court will say are okay because of this is compelled speech or this is a religious sort of thing. And that's, that's my, my concern. And honestly, my, my fear about this. Um, uh, Kent, what do you think? And then Jay, you can comment on that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, in, w- one of the things about Justice Kennedy is in his famous opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the 1992 decision where um, a lot of liberals give him credit for having saved Roe versus Wade, um, giving the, the fifth vote to save it. Um, that same opinion uh, created a new constitutional standard that had never existed in, in, in constitutional law before um, called the undue burden standard. And, and so Kennedy says, on the one hand, um, there's a, there's a constitutional right to reproductive choice, which includes the right to choose abortion. But then he says, on the other hand, um, unlike any other constitutional right, uh, state governments are allowed to do everything they can 
to persuade people uh, not to exercise this constitutional right, to take the position that it's a bad constitutional right, that people are being bad when they exercise it, and to try to talk them out of it. And, and based on that doctrine, which, which Kennedy created more or less out of whole cloth, uh, there's, um, there's been very few cases, uh, um, really only one or two abortion restrictions in all the years since 1992, where the court has struck down those restrictions as violating the undue burden standard. And the standard overwhelmingly uh, protects state restrictions on abortion. And there's a lot of parts of the country now where there's no uh, abortion services available because these state restrictions have made it uh, more or less impossible to provide it. So well, I think that's the model, and I think that will continue. Well, let me, let me before, Jay, before you, before you get to your, your response, what I'm thinking about it, and maybe this sounds paranoid and crazy on my, on my part, and, and if it does, I don't know, but I'm visualizing kind of that model for LGBTQ rights saying that, yeah, you know, there is this, you know, these equal, equal protection concerns and all that, but let's say that, well, you can't disallow same-sex marriages, but you can require couples who want to have a same-sex marriage to seek some sort of psychological counseling or, or something yeah. like that. And I know that sounds weird and perverse, and in my head that just seems so like unlikely, but then I think there are people who firmly believe that this is just such a twisted and wrong thing, and and maybe in some states they have a majority, and I can see that being a big campaign issue and so forth. And I don't, I don't know, am I am I crazy to think that this is a possibility? Um, Jay, why don't you go go first, and then Ken, you can uh, respond to that. Yeah, you're crazy. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know. I, I just I I think we're we're not. Uh, uh, at that place, uh, our, our, our country at this point, um, I, I don't see any, something like that, those kind of restrictions, uh, being saleable anywhere. Um, cause I, first of all, I think that that brings in a whole lot of issues beyond same sex marriage, uh, that I think would, uh, would violate uh, substantive due process that, um, so I, I, I just don't, I don't see that happening. And I'm trying to imagine the, the scenario other than, um, you know, sort of the denial of services, uh, where, where there would be this, this chipping away. Um, and, and I'm, I'm not seeing it. I think there's, there are going to be a bunch of cases of, of, okay, what's, what's speech, what's, uh, just providing a service, um, and uh, again, we haven't even gotten to that point where the court will, will draws that line saying this is, you know, you, you can't compel speech, but you, you can't deny service. But I think that's where it's going. Um, you know, your example for the caterers, I think that's that's the kind of case that, well, uh, you know, we'll, it'll go through the court and, and they'll, they'll figure it out. My sense is, that, you know, someone like a caterer wouldn't wouldn't be speech, but but uh, maybe there's a, a better case to be made. Um, so, no, I, I just don't. Uh, I don't sense this this animus uh, in the country to um, uh, discriminate against uh, 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 LG uh, you know people. I, I so I, I don't I don't think there's going to be a, a case to take up on those grounds. I think I think there may be, uh, as we said, some some uh, First Amendment type cases, uh, you know, about where you draw that line. But I don't see. I don't see new statutory restrictions or a state trying to uh, revive uh, some old statutory prescription. Ken, Ken, what do you think? Uh, do you agree with Jay that I'm, yeah. I'm being paranoid about this or something? Well, I, you know, I, I, I would probably go in between. I, I think I'm somewhere in between where the two of you are on this. I, I sort of agree with Jay that there won't be um, uh, the type states aren't going to I don't predict that they're going to enact the type of statute that you described. Um, 
so I don't think those kind of cases are going to come before the court. But what I do think is that um, with the, 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 a combination of um, uh, very aggressive free speech doctrines that go to things that don't have much to do with speech, very aggressive um, religion doctrines, particularly under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, as well as under the Constitution, where you could basically characterize any kind of anti-gay bigotry as a right of um, religious exercise or religious expression, and with a willingness of some justices on the court to twist facts when necessary, in cases, um, I do think that when it's not only going to be uh, provision of service discrimination, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop, but also employment discrimination, landlord-tenant discrimination, you know, various kinds of anti-gay discrimination, I think the court is going to consistently um, approve and endorse those kinds of discrimination so that we're going to have a situation not where states are passing the kind of laws that you're talking about, but where private people who want to discriminate against gays in a variety of ways are always going to be found to have some kind of legal right to do that. Right, right. You know, and obviously, the, I saved this for last, but the one area I think that people are talking about most of all here with the, with this new court is uh, Roe, Roe versus Wade. I mean, right after, minutes after Kennedy announced his retirement, uh, a CNN senior legal analyst, uh, Jeffrey uh, Tubin, he tweeted, Anthony Kennedy is retiring. Abortion will be illegal in 20 states in 18 months. Um, uh, so uh, 16, Mike, 16. We're, we're, we're trying to speed it up. So it'll be. Yeah. So, Jay, obviously you think this is ridiculous. So you don't you don't think that this is uh, this is what's finally going to lead to Roe v. Wade being uh, uh, being overruled? No, I, I don't. And to some extent, uh, Ken's right in that in a lot of ways it, it already has been overruled. Uh, you know, the 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 the. the provision that that uh, Roe v. Wade created, where it was a trimester system, uh, has given way uh, uh, to to a, a viability uh, line. And then it's also been given way to, um, w- you know, in terms of what kind of restrictions uh, states can impose restrictions as so long as it's not an undue burden. Um, I don't see that fundamental test changing. Uh, there might be some some movement around the edges as far as what a a new court considers an undue burden uh, versus what Kennedy considered an undue burden. Uh, But I I don't see a a wholesale revisiting and saying we're overruling Roe versus Wade. Um, One reason, again, I think is the the um, uh, the authority of the court. I think I think Roberts would would push hard against that. Uh, Secondly, when when there's whenever a court uh, invalidates overrules, uh, a prior ruling. Part of the analysis is: is there a, a substantial reliance interest uh, on this? And, and in this case, I'd have to say yes. For for the past uh, forty five years, there has been this reliance uh, that that there is a right uh, to abortion in certain circumstances. Uh, it's not a, an unlimited right, uh, but I, I think that the the uh, uh, court's integrity, it, its uh, authority would be, uh, they, they'd certainly lessen it uh, were they to say, no, we're just, we're just wiping all that out. Ken, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I might have some semantic uh, different ways of saying some of those ideas, but I basically agree with those ideas. Um, I, I do believe Roe versus Wade um, functionally has already been overruled because under the undue burden test, uh, it's uh, extremely unusual to find uh, 
any, I, I think really only the only thing that the court has ever said is an undue burden is a um, spousal notification provision, right? So Pennsylvania had a law that said if a married woman wants to get an abortion, uh, her husband has to be notified. And the court found that that was an undue burden. Um, but there's nothing else the court's ever found was an undue burden. So well, but, but the Ken, burden. There's, there's a lot of cases that the court has declined to hear. Uh, where right, you've but had, there's a, had had yeah. had you know circuit courts have found undue burdens, but there's a example. lot of cases. Yeah, there's a lot of cases that the court has heard and has overruled um, pre Casey precedents. So there there were a lot of abortion cases between Roe in 1973 and Casey in 1992, where the the Supreme Court struck down a lot of different kinds of restriction on abortion, and substantially all of those cases have been overruled under the uh, undue burden test. So that the the precise provisions that were unconstitutional between 1973 and 1992. These precise restrictions were later held to actually be constitutional. Many precedents were overruled. The, the other thing I would say is that the, this idea about um, when society gives substantial reliance uh, on a Supreme Court doctrine, that they'll be more hesitant to overrule the doctrine, that, that is the precise language that was written by Justice Kennedy and joined by Justice uh, Souter and Justice O'Connor in the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. But all three of those justices are now off the court. None of the other justices at that time signed off, signed on to that idea. Um, Justice Scalia, in a in a in a dissent for the four uh, conservatives in the same case, you know, very vigorously and vehemently attacked that idea. Um, and I think the um, you know I don't see anybody but Roberts on the contemporary court really agreeing with that. Um, and Roberts may be the swing vote on this issue, but what I think that means then is that um, Roe versus Wade may not be formally overruled by name. Um, uh, but I, I think the court will continue and even accelerate um, the, the idea that as it applies the undue burden standard, um, it will never, ever find that any restriction actually constitutes an undue burden. And thus, um, every kind of state restriction on abortion will be sustained in the Supreme Court. So neither well, of you, but, but except, Ken, you, you would agree with me. No state could could uh, pass a uh, uh, across the board ban on abortion. Yeah, I mean, I, even I, under know, even the most conservative court. I mean, I I I I I don't see that happening, and I I can't see how a court could say an absolute ban doesn't constitute an undue burden. Well, well, let me let me ask you. Well, let me ask this because I yeah. have this sort of scenario in mind. Let's say a state decides that uh, you know uh, whatever as, as a matter of policy that life begins at conception, and so they pass a law saying that in in. In light of this, uh, that the only grounds in which a, a woman can get a, an abortion is if her her uh, her life is threatened, essentially. So it's not about viability or anything like that. That the that the fetus has an equal or more or less an equal sort of claim uh, to protection as the as the mother does. I mean, is that is that something that the court could potentially look at and say, well, yeah, let's not even worry about viability. Let's just say that the only grounds under which a woman can get an abortion is if her actual life is threatened, or is that just not something you see the court being willing to endorse? Uh, Ken? Sorry. Well, I, I think that under the current precedents, including Casey and the undue burden standard, uh, that, that, would be, that would be seen as unconstitutional because, because viability has to be taken account of under those precedents. But, right. but, but, but I think where you're going with this is, would, they, that, would that be the vehicle to overrule Casey and Roe? Um, I think if a state went that far, it's very hard to predict how it would go, because I think um, I would predict that uh, certainly Alito and Gorsuch uh, and Thomas 
would sustain a statute like that. And so, you know, whether there's going to be a, a fourth and fifth vote to do that depends on who the new justice is and depends on uh, uh, what Roberts would do if he had to be the deciding vote in that case, I think. Yeah. Jay? Uh, again, I would say, um, first, uh, I, don't, I don't know that the political will exists in, in any state uh, for, for that kind of um, enactment. Um, that said, even if it does, I, I think I think it gets struck down. I, I don't see I don't see any way. And and I, I, again, I, I think the um, uh, the court as a whole is going to be reluctant to say we're going to completely revisit the undue burden test and, and throw the whole thing out and go back to, um, uh, you know, the, the states have an unlimited right to regulate abortion. Uh, I think I think again, there may be some some trimming here and there as to as to what's an undue burden and what's not. And and Ken's right in that the uh, strike zone for for um, uh, undue burdens uh, is probably going to be pretty narrow. Um, but um, I, I don't uh, I, I don't see that. I just I just don't see that kind of thing happening. And I think the court would put its its credibility at, at uh, risk if it did something like that. Well, you know, I'm thinking also going back to, to Ken's statement earlier on about, you know, the, the justices being very political. When I think about the sort of conservative backlash to Roe versus Wade and how it really energized uh, uh, sort of a, a conservative movement, I would think a lot of conservatives would say, well, no, the smart thing to do would actually be to overrule it in all but name, so that way we don't risk that kind of huge liberal backlash, essentially. So that would be the smart sort of strategic thing to do, is to not overrule it, really, but to sort of limit it to the point where, you know, constrain it to the point where it becomes more and more difficult for women to end their pregnancy. Would you, would you agree with that, Ken? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a theory that that's what all the prior Republican presidents were trying to do, because Reagan and George H.W. Bush and uh, George W. Bush, um, you know, each of them uh, um, either succeeded in or at least tried to, in, in W. Bush's case, um, to, to split their appointments to the court between uh, pro-choice Republicans and pro-life Republicans. So Reagan put on um, O'Connor and uh, Kennedy, who both became defenders of Roe. Um, George H.W. Bush put on Souter, who became a defender of Roe, and George W. Bush actually tried to put on Harriet Myers, who was known to be uh, uh, pro, pro, pro-choice, but the, um, the conservative movement pushed back against that. So I think, I think if you look at um, what Republican presidents have done and, and look at the d- disparity between that and what they've said, they've typically tried to put um, some Scalia-type and Thomas-type justices on the court to keep the loyalty of the, the right wing. But they've tried to prevent uh, that faction uh, from getting a majority, at least with respect to abortion. Um, however, you know, Trump's not thinking strategically like that, I'm sure. And, and you know, I think there are um, easily three votes, and I'll repeat them again, Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas, who would just simply overrule Roe in a second. They, they don't see any compunction about doing that. So, so it becomes the numbers game about, um, are, is there going to be a fourth and a fifth vote for that? And, and the, the Trump nominee could provide one more vote for that which would really leave that decision in the hands of Roberts. Right. Jay, any, any thoughts on that? Um, I, I, oh, I don't know. My, my sense is most presidents do try to seek some sort of uh, balance on the court. Uh, I think there's always been this idea of, um, you know, an unwillingness to make too sudden of a shift. Um, 
so I, I think maybe there's there's something to that. Um, uh, but but we'll see. And so often the other the other thing is when presidents make these appointments, um, a lot of times you you think you know what a, a justice will do. Uh, but they don't always do that. And, and I think you can, um, I think, I think that was probably, um, Souter. Yeah. A suitor is, is a prime example. And Kennedy's another, um, where, uh, you know, where, where judges are, are truly uh, independent and, uh, you can't always predict exactly where, uh, where they're going to go. So I, I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to, to think that there's a, you know, bigger thinking as far as, um, I want to have this justice on there to keep the abortion debate alive so that I can get more contributions or, or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think yeah, that's I, I don't... the functional thing of, of it. Yeah. And, and to me, it's if this if the if the fight uh, moves back into the political realm, I think that's what most uh, conservative uh, minded uh, folks on, on, on judicial issues would would think is the right thing. Right. That that these issues be hashed out in state legislatures uh, rather than by the court. Right. Um, Ken, you were going to. Yeah. Well, I say, well, the last thing Jay said, of course, means the overruling of Roe versus Wade. Um, But I was going to say, I don't think Souter was a surprise to George H.W. Bush. I think um, his pro-choice views were actually the reason he got the nomination, because I think, I think Bush um, was looking to make sure that he didn't change the balance. He appointed Clarence Thomas, but then he appointed Souter because if he would have appointed a, an anti-choice justice right then, the votes would have been there to overrule uh, Roe versus Wade. And I, I think H.W. Bush just did not want that. Yeah. Well, well I, I would say on that that I think that we are certainly in a very different world from the republicanism of George H.W. Bush. And uh, I, I would almost expect that if President Trump, and this would shock the hell out of me, if he nominated someone who was even a little iffy on uh, on uh, abortion uh, rights or you know someone who wasn't anti-choice i think that actually the senate republicans in the senate might push back pretty hard on that because i think it's just a whole different world in terms of polarization on this issue so i don't uh, i don't expect that anyone that donald trump nominates is going to be by any stretch of the imagination uh moderate I, I don't think so but we will see he says that he will announce his nominee on i believe it's july 9th so we'll certainly be talking a lot about that so uh again i want to thank uh, uh jay you of course you're you're here pretty much every week jay so right, thank yeah. you anyway but but ken thanks so much for for joining us on this like i said i thought this would be uh i was a little i was a little hesitant you know whenever you put two two lawyers together you never know what's going to happen but uh but there you go i really appreciate your insights on this so thanks everyone for i hope you guys enjoyed the show um and uh, before we go though i want to thank everyone who's checked out my new interview podcast politics plus um this week i talked to neuroscientist uh, tally sherritt about the science of influence and how we can all be better influencers uh, a little sneak preview for next week i'll be posting a conversation i had with beck dory stein who was a white house stenographer believe it or not they still have white house stenographers uh for four years in both the obama and trump administrations and she as you can imagine she has some pretty uh, interesting stories uh to tell and that'll come out uh, next monday and of course you can find politics plus and subscribe wherever you get podcasts or at the politics plus website politicsplus.us all right well that's it for this episode Thanks, everyone, for listening. Listener support, of course, is what helps keep the show going. We really do appreciate it. So if you'd like to help us out, go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link, or just go to politicsguys.com, and you'll see the menu item there for support the show. 
Subscribing also really helps, as does sharing episodes, which you can do right in your podcast app. We would really appreciate that. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes helps out a lot. So if you want to get in touch with us, it's mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where you can message us and we post all kinds of stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with the new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.